All right, welcome to another episode of We Read Theory, a podcast by Mark and Alex, where we read radical leftist literature so you don't have to. Uh, Mark, what will we be reading through today? Uh, Today, we're going to be reading a piece called Capitalist Realism by a writer named Mark Fisher. This is, if you exist anywhere in the uh, online leftist space, this is probably a name you've heard before, or might be at least. And in short, what it really gets at is this idea, this really pervasive idea that capitalism is the only real economic system that like exists. And in doing so, it kind of takes over history. And like we kind of pretend that we were capitalist at times that we weren't. It can get kind of complicated. Um, But really, it's a great piece to help you understand like the psyche of people who just don't even understand what it is you're getting at when you talk about the failings of capitalism or possible alternatives. So this one is to radicalize um, Facebook wine moms in their <laughs> local congressman's comment sections, just harassing him. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Facebook wine mom is already a radical ideology. Yeah, this is a very pro-wine mom podcast. Just wanted to make sure everyone understands that. Moms can have a little wine. Yeah, true. And also me. All right. So do you want to just get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. So, capitalist realism as a concept is the pervasive idea that capitalism is the only real economic system that works. Mark Fisher's book serves to describe both the mechanisms by which capitalism is turned from ideology to fact and the repercussions of treating it that way. Central to capitalist realism is a pervasive sense of individualism. Uh, As Max Stirner might say, the public as an entity that is more than just a bunch of individuals, is a spook. Uh, Only the individual is real. I'm also reminded of that very famous Margaret Thatcher quote, that there's no such thing as society, there's only men, women, children, and families. The problem with this is that it makes it impossible to solve structural problems because the structures themselves can't take responsibility the way that individuals can. We can only punish the individuals who are a part of the structure, whose actions have led them to become stand-ins for the structure's negative aspects. Uh, But even that punishment is often undermined by the fact that we all kind of understand that these problems are actually structural. They are problems with capital and not just like individuals. So what ends up happening is that at once... um, we have this notion that there's no structure, only individuals, but that's at the same time followed by the notion that individuals can't really be held accountable either because they're only responding to their incentives and doing their jobs. Uh, The actual cause of the problem, capital, doesn't exist in this philosophical framework really, and it remains untouchable as a result. It would be a mistake to pretend that the past was a superbly open-ended time when it came to political possibilities But for those of us born after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've never really known any economic system that wasn't dominated by capital. Real existing socialism really doesn't exist in any serious uh, form anymore. And as a result, capitalism has stretched to fill every corner of the political imagination. In particular, capital has commodified resistance against itself. You may be against consumerism, But the only viable way to express this belief is by buying the right things. Mark Fisher uses an example of Bono's red campaign. It's kind of come to be symbolic of this big problem because red was all about fighting structural inequality. But 
the way that you fought structural inequality through red was by buying products. And once again, there's capital, there's consumerism. Professing anti-capitalist rhetoric while supporting capitalism in action constitutes an ideology coined by Slavoj Žižek as liberal communism. Uh, Žižek argues that liberal communism constitutes the dominant ideology of capitalism today. It's further defined by its rhetorical ownership of the new, the new in this context being flexibility, decentralization, and spontaneity. And the effect of this like ownership of the new is twofold. The first is that it reinforces the strong individualism that underscores capitalist realism and relegates any mention of structures and popular will to kind of feeling old and outdated. The second is that it makes virtues out of the personal qualities that are necessary to survive in an economic environment that's increasingly precarious for working people. We're talking about, you know, personal flexibility, not demanding a raise every year being able to handle that precariousness without getting too overwhelmed. These are virtues in the current system. And one of Mark Fisher's main thrusts in this work is that internalizing these virtues has disastrous effects on our mental health, and that the mental health crisis we live in today is much more political rather than medical in nature than we tend to let on. Okay, so first off, just write what you said at the end. The qualities to survive in this sort of environment are becoming virtues so just as an example i'm trying to i'm trying to understand it's um when someone does like yeah let me i think i understand what you're getting at let me use the example that mark fisher uses he compares so so right now the style of economy that we're living in is is what mark fisher calls post fortis as opposed to the fordist style of, of economy which was kind of pioneered by ford and his like sort of um, production line quality. The main difference between the Fordist mode of production and the anti and the post Fordist is that like under Fordist production, you work at the same factory, you have a skilled job, and you work there for 40, 50 years, uh, you know, slowly advancing while honing your craft and becoming more experienced, training people below you, and eventually you retire with a pension. In the post Fordist economy, this is kind of like what we call the gig economy, where you're constantly shifting jobs, you're really, really expendable, no job security, wondering where your next paycheck's going to come from every week. And so the virtues that you, or the behaviors that you have to exhibit in order to survive in these two different economies are really different from each other. And Mark Fisher uses the example of gangster movies to get this across. The Fordist economy is represented better by the crime families of movies like The Godfather, those old mob families where everyone knew each other, everyone knew everything about each other. Loyalty was super important more than anything else. And around the time that we kind of shifted into the post-Fordist era in the late 70s, as Mark Fisher would argue, we also see a shift in kind of how we portray our heist movies, our gangster movies. We now have... We have movies like Heat is the example that he uses, which I think we may have watched together a few years back now. But that's the one with um, the guy with the long blonde hair. Yeah, it's got Val Kilmer. That and dude. It's got and it's got yeah Batman. No, was he Batman? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was. Batman. I think he was Batman. Let's not get into it. Um, and those two those two Italian guys who are in every gangster movie, uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. Yeah. Anyways, um, so 
what separates heat, what, what, what kind of defines the gangster market in heat is that everyone is totally disconnected. Nobody keeps close ties with everyone. Everyone's kind of like a temporary contractor that comes together to do a job. It's like consulting mm-hmm. um, in that sense. And then they break off and they don't see each other. There's no sense of like loyalty is a, is a, is a, um, is a big weakness. You have to be willing to walk out on things that you care about to go where the money is going. And you have to be able to kind of live in this constant state of unsureness, constant state of precarity. And that's exactly the kind of state that workers are living in today in under the gig economy, under the post-Fordist mode of production. And so in order to deal with this, we detach ourselves from reality in a sense. We don't think of time as linear we kind of live our lives in little vignettes we don't worry about what's the future going to hold because you can't you, you just can't get by that way you're filled with doom when you realize that there really is no plan for the future so successful managers are people who can kind of detach themselves from that you know messed up aspect of the time in their lives who can just kind of deal with precarities and and almost work in the same way as like the citizens in 1984 where when you hear We've always been allied with East Asia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. You know, it's it, it seems hyperbolic, but in a sense, that's the way that you, like, reacting to new news as if it's always been true and kind of living in this dreamlike state is a virtue under the current mode of production. And it drives people insane. So just to have, like, yeah. if I can... Yeah. Just to have, like, like the super simple <laughs> example. In, like, in a perfect world everyone's health care would be paid for and that wouldn't be a thing they have to worry about over getting better, right? That's a great example, yeah. So, but today we have a kid who starts a lemonade stand so his mom can afford insulin or something like that. And that's viewed incorrectly, you're saying, is hopeful and um, kind of, I don't know, a yeah. sweet thing rather than disgusting because we should be able to provide that. Yeah, you're, kind, you're, you're getting at it, maybe even better yet, then that example would be a a manager who who starts up a project and after six months of hard work with his team is told that the project you know isn't going to be funded isn't going to be released anymore they're working on this thing now where they're you know a smaller part a much larger project they're doing some lackey work and then the manager doesn't get upset he just you know deals with it gets his team to do what they need to be doing now, doesn't worry about it, and kind of just accepts it as if it was always true and is just okay with this constant instability. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, or but, but like you said, yeah, uh, workers who maybe lose their, maybe lose certain benefits will just get on with it and not worry too hard about it. Uh, all of these things are kind of capitalist virtues or post-Fordist capitalist virtues. Um, and, de- and kind of, extolling those virtues is very damaging to our mental health is just the is like the overall virtue getting at just accepting the powers that be and like you're there's i don't know forces above making these decisions and you just are affected by it there's nothing going back yeah it's subservience but rather than like the fordist i mean the the virtue is subservience in both the fordist and post-fordist model but whereas the fordist model is subservience to a king you know, a dictator, the post-Fordist model is subservience to Loki, you know, some <laughs> god of chaos. Because uh, that's really what 
uh, the gig economy, what capital in the gig economy has become, it's become, it's become sort of a god of chaos that we all have to live under. This is maybe a little bit off topic. This is really more of a um, an effect of living under capitalist realism. But I, I'm wondering if you have, if, if there's anything in uh, that intro that we just went over uh, that's maybe more directly about how capitalist realism, you know, manifests in day-to-day life and, and how and how it can make it difficult to advocate for uh, yeah. social change, socialism, anarchism, communism. So two things came to mind when you were talking about, um, when you had that intro, the first thing that came to mind was that Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner, where it's like a bunch of protesters. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. And like, she just go, goes up to them, like stares a cop in the face and drinks a Pepsi, just absolutely owning him. With capitalism is yeah, and, so sick. And what's really pernicious about an ad like that... Can you divine pernicious for those of us who are dumb? Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of just means harmful in this sick. context. Yeah. What's really harmful about an ad like that is that it kind of scrubs... It, it turns resistance against authority to an aesthetic rather than to, you know, something that might actually have a philosophical foundation. And we see this in the same way with um, Mark Fisher uses Live Aid, which was back in the 1980s, uh, 85. And Live Aid has kind of, at least for Mark Fisher, has come to be emblematic of this, of this like kind of aesthetic practice of resisting capitalism, of resisting, you know, Live Aid was against poverty. Who in their right mind is pro-poverty? But... That's really important because being against poverty is an aesthetic. It's an affect. It's not actually a policy position that you might pursue. And that's the same kind of thing that you're talking about with um, that Pepsi commercial, right? Is that, you know, the protesters are just for peace, you know, but there's no policy prescription that you can derive from that. And that's really the sense that a lot of like commodified resistance against capitalism uh, carries with it is that it's really more of an aesthetic. And so like a lot of people go around watching movies where the big bad guy is the corporation or, or, you know, listening to music that talks about how like the system is bad and we can all kind of collectively understand this. And in fact, as Fisher argues, our collective understanding that maybe not in this vocabulary, but that capital is causing all these structural problems that money in the way that we do it, the way the stock market works is kind of silly and a little ridiculous. And by understanding this, it actually allows us to go about um, dealing with it because we could never convince ourselves that it was, you know, that it makes sense, that it's rational. So we end up kind of doing it as a form of collective irony, almost. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with a YouTube channel named Philosophy Tube, he did a video on Elon Musk which begins with an extended um, allegory, so to speak, where Elon Musk is compared to Pontius Pilate. And Elon Musk's participation, and, and, you know, other people like him, and their participation in the capitalist system, their being the main benefactors of it and pushers of it, and, you know, allowing the system to persist is all really, really harmful in a lot of ways. And they kind of wash their hands of it in the same way that Pontius Pilate did with his killing of Jesus Christ, uh, by symbolically washing their hands, donating to certain charities. 
by expressing certain politics verbally, but there's no collective expectation that they're actually going to do anything on a systemic level. The symbolic washing of the hands is predominant. And this is really what Mark Fisher is talking about when he talks about liberal communism, this liberal way of acting, way of being that gets to parade around with socialist rhetoric at times to go, oh, ha ha, yeah, like, I know how ridiculous this is, but let's be real, you know, like, hating capitalism is just a feeling, like, it's not actually a policy prescription. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, like, it takes, there, there's, there's, there's people or media that takes all the, all the, you know, the hatred and energy you have against, like, the way things are, and then bottles it and sells it to you, yes. which is fucking ironic as hell. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, kind of pivoting a little bit, um, what you said in the intro about people wanting to change things, um, not being looked at with any real sincerity, you know, like just, um, like, say like 95% of the population just accepting the way things are and putting down those who actually think, you know, like, like things could be different and things be better. I kind of feel like that was the, um more eloquent way of saying like the the libertarian uh talking point of you own an iphone yet you hate capitalism you like participate in it yet you think it should be improved somewhat yeah well i don't think capitalism should be well i mean i guess i believe capitalism should be improved but long term we're looking bigger than that i think you would agree with that oh of course but yeah yeah, yeah. i'm sorry i i didn't mean to interrupt you like that <clears throat> yeah no um i was just asking if if that's what Mark Fisher's saying, if he had like a recipe for like, like for that specific talking point, like, a, like, a, like, like, does he provide a counter argument? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, or is it, um, or is it just, you should just ignore those people? I suppose, you know, it's not really, capitalist realism is really more just trying to describe a phenomenon more than provide specific counter arguments. Um, but I mean, the basic fact is that, we haven't always lived under capitalism. And that is one of the main features of capitalist realism, that capitalism kind of goes back and subsumes the whole past and makes it impossible to uh, ascribe any like progress to, things, to, to, to forces other than capital, even though that's not really how history works. So, you know, if someone argues that uh, like capitalism brought everything good, I guess you could just say that, no, it didn't. It's just not a fact. But Alex... Uh, I really want to talk to you about market Stalinism. Is that a phrase that means anything to you? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is a load of garbo. Yeah, it kind of, in the same sense as liberal communist, it sort of sounds um, like it can't possibly exist and it's intentionally paradoxical. I don't think Mark Fisher would agree with that, though. Uh, in talking about market Stalinism, he's talking about um, how... Under the Soviet Union, there was a bad uh, habit of you would have like a project and you would have certain uh, key performance indexes, so to speak, to measure whether the project was going along nicely, uh, and particularly the White Sea Canal and the kind of production of that of that uh, canal was a big example of this that Mark Fisher uses. And what ended up happening was that in pursuing indicators of success the actual production was 
kind of fell by the wayside. And this is a huge aspect of. Oh, do you have something to say? Oh my god! I no. saw your face light up when I said that. Wait, what, what, do you, what do you? What do you? What do you? What are you thinking? No, this sounds like like really similar to a book I read okay. um, about the lie detector, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good uh, analogy. Actually, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So from from what I remember, this, remember this was college. I'm not really actually doing much reading, but so they there was this guy who made a lie detector and was so intent on making it work that he just bring the lie detector into the room and hook everyone up to it and sort of get it con- like sort of like force a confession out but it was attributed to the lie detector even if the confession um, was just to like stop like the you know eight to ten hours of interrogation so it, it did achieve the result but not but just nominally you know if the overall goal was to find out who done it, yeah, it didn't achieve that, but achieved like the um, like the stat of confessions. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. And so yeah, so that's kind of that's an aspect of what Mark Fisher calls market Stalinism, um, that kind of anti-productive management style where performance indicators are are the product in a lot in the, in that sense. Um, that's really the result of, for Mark Fisher, uh, neoliberalism and and heavy privatization. And that was done originally kind of with the promise that that was going to reduce government bureaucracy. And the big upshot of that is that the bureaucracy didn't go away because you still have to see what you're doing, make sure it's going on correctly. But it started happening for different reasons in different places. So instead of the government coming into a school or a government inspector coming into a school and making sure that things are are going the right way, we have now a private, we now have imported the bureaucratic functions into the school. And now the teachers are the ones who might have to uh, write up progress indications, who might have to do that bureaucratic work themselves, which is, you know, once again, really bad for people's um, mental health because now instead of occasionally having an inspection in, you're under constant inspection. And in a lot of, Mark Fisher gives examples of self-assessment where people are expected to kind of self-criticize. And so in this sense, the um, mode of production is kind of demanding an affect from you as well as your labor. You know, you have to, you know, it's not just service, it's service with a smile. And like you said previously, having to meet those ridiculous expectations has got to take a toll on your mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mental health was a surprisingly really central aspect to this text. Um, we kind of live in an era where mental health is really, really medicalized. Like, when if you're depressed, it's because there's a chemical imbalance in your brain. And of course, uh, that's a big part of it. Mark Fisher, or, you know, that's that could be the entire thing. But Mark Fisher argues that there are deeper causes to kind of this collective um, mental illness that we have. Because in, in, in a lot of ways, our era feels defined by mental illness. And specifically, illnesses like depression, anxiety, um, ADHD. And these are all very capitalist mental illnesses um, for Mark Fisher. One of his big prescriptions um, for the left that comes kind of at the end of this in the last chapter is the repoliticization of mental health. 
that's really, really, uh, that was one of the big takeaways from this text that I understood because capitalism is very resistant to things that it can't reconcile within capital. Um, climate change is one of those big things that like, you know, the market solves everything. Capitalism can solve everything, but it, it physically can't solve climate change in the same way. It can't solve the crisis we're having of mental illness because it is in its core, the cause of it. So we know the, the problem that the left has with unifying, right? I think there's a big divide between just literally anyone left of center has between people who want complete upheaval of the system and people who want change within the framework we already have. Okay. Now, is change within the framework we already have in, I guess, Mark Fisher's view necessarily the worst thing? So I guess, a, would he hate social democrats? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. Hate is definitely not the right word. He he oh, doesn't say anything. Disagree with? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously he does disagree because he believes that um, these you know the problems that we're facing today are inherent to capitalism, not crony capitalism, not corporatism, but to capital. Uh, he's very clear about that. So naturally, the conclusion that you have to draw from that is that a major form of social change is necessary. Okay, so he thinks radical change is necessary, but how would exactly that come about? Well, that's the big question, right? Because capitalist realism is all about why it's so hard to even get it in people's heads in the first place. A few prescriptions that he has is to kind of bring back about this idea of society, of a collective identity. Um, because right now we're super duper atom atomized and that atomization is a virtue. So if we can kind of remake this idea of society as a real thing, we can start to make more structural critiques of society. That's a big one. Individualism kind of is the big bad uh, philosophically for um, when it comes to capitalism. Like that's the main method by which capitalist realism takes hold is through this like really, really pervasive individualism. So um, one example of this is how he talks about, is how Mark Fisher talks about um, social media, how social media is a very atomized form of entertainment. And it's sort of like represents this like shirking of paternal responsibility from, from, you know, higher powers of some kind and how we ultimately end up in a in an age where everyone is siphoned off there's no sense of interconnectedness because we are constantly um walling ourselves off from the rest of humanities through like social media subscriptions or through choosing our media in the way that we do so mark fisher seems to be in favor of some degree of a paternalistic um something he called he says marxist super nanny right and the purpose of this paternalistic power is to encourage people to contend with ideas that they wouldn't choose to on their own. Something that our parents do actually do for us that is considered necessary uh, throughout our development. And so, in short, yeah, that kind of reinstatement of society as an actual entity and of the exertion of some degree of paternalistic um encouragement of expanding one's horizons uh, are the two main prescriptions that I personally received from this book. So after this, you definitely think 
Bernie Sanders is a centrist. <laughs> well, I mean, um, Bernie, I mean, I mean, by his, I mean, I have my personal opinions about uh, Bernie Sanders' personal beliefs, but his platform is obviously not anti-capitalist in any meaningful way. Uh, some of his rhetoric does touch on anti-capitalist um, rhetoric, but, you know, that's really more of an affect. And once again, that, uh, that anti-capitalist affect is not anti-capitalism, and that was really one of the big... Uh, uh, thrust of this book so yeah i guess i guess i suppose he is a centrist by that logic then <laughs> there we go perfect we learned something today yeah so on that note i guess um we can have mark play us out here uh, thank <laughs> you for um all the boys girls and people don't who don't fit into those boxes for listening to this podcast and we hope you join us next time yeah. Uh, how about you tell the nice people where they can follow us on social media? We literally just talked about that. I'm so fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have we have we have a Twitter now. Uh, um, we read theory pod. Um, wherever you get your Twitter, uh, find us, follow us, and look at the shitty things I retweet. <laughs>